Welcome to Unpacking Peanuts, the podcast where three cartoonists take an in-depth look at the greatest comic strip of all time, Peanuts by Charles M. Schultz. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. It's Unpacking Peanuts, the show where we look deep at Charles Schultz's comic strip masterpiece, Peanuts. Uh, today on the show, we're looking at 1954, which is a year with many high highs, some strange detours, a few left turns at Albuquerque. I'm your host. I'm Jimmy Gownley. If you know me, you might know me from my comic book series, Amelia Rules, or my graphic novels, The Dumbest Idea Ever, Seven Good Reasons Not to Grow Up. Joining me uh, are my co-hosts. He's a playwright, a composer for the band Complicated People, as well as for this very podcast. Uh, And he's the cartoonist behind such great strips as Strange Attractors, Tangled River, and A Gathering of Spells, Michael Cohen. Hello there. And executive producer and writer for the classic TV show Mystery Science Theater 3000, former vice president of Archie Comics, and current creator of the Instagram strip Sweetest Beasts, Harold Buckholtz. Hello. Okay, guys. I think this this conservatively this episode is going to last seven and a half days because we are into the to the meat of peanuts now. And I, I have I have a few hot takes, but before I, I say anything about about what I think of this year, I I want to hear from you guys. I've been actually champing at the bit waiting to discuss this year with you guys. Michael, what are you, what are your initial thoughts? Definitely, he's nailed the Sundays, and it's amazing because, like, with a few exceptions, they're all absolutely brilliant. And I was a little surprised because I I was always thinking that Schultz got into his absolute prime with Peanuts around 56, and I was just surprised how many, you know, absolute home run strips there were, especially the Sundays. And there were some real serious missteps, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, it is It is definitely a year of extremes, which is, I think, one of the reasons we could talk about it for so long. Uh, Harold, what are your takeaways? Yeah, I, you get the sense he's had so much change in his life. And uh, over the first three, four years, he's working on this strip. And and I, this is, I think, more of the same, in a sense, uh, for, for Schultz. I think there's less less change for him this year than any of the years up to this point where he's really maybe able to focus on the strip um, without having to address some new issue or new uh, addition to his life. So, you know, he's introducing some new characters um, and uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's just perfecting his craft at this, this year, it seems to me. So I know we're going to talk about this in detail when we go through the strips one by one, but I I want to talk with you guys about some of those left turns that he takes this year, because it seems to me we've been watching, you know, over the course of the last few years, last few episodes for us, um, him gradually adding these little building blocks to the strip and some of them really stick and, and become a part of the fabric that we think of forever and ever. And some of them stick around for a little while. Uh, before fading away, but none of them feel wildly out of place or like wildly off the mark. I mean, the closest thing for me from the earlier ones would be Violet's Mud Pies, which I think he thinks is funnier than than I personally do, but it doesn't feel outside the world of Peanuts. But he does some things this year which are really outside of what 
we think of as peanuts and they don't work. I mean, what do you think it is when everything else is operating at that unbelievably high level of creativity, the new stuff, the new ideas aren't clicking? I wonder what that's about. I think he's getting bolder. I think he's he's getting bolder in, in trying new things and, and leaping off from, from where he is and going somewhere new, you know, and I, um, <laughs> at least in, at least in one case. <laughs> is there any chance that the syndicate asked him to do more continuity on the Sunday? I, I, you know, I think there has to be some sort of external reason. And what Michael's talking about right now, we'll get into into detail later, but it's it's Lucy's first golf tournament, first and only golf tournament in this style anyway, thankfully. And, and I have, so if I was a conspiracy theorist, I have a lot to say about that sequence because I do. Yeah, it, I have a lame theory myself. Do you? It feels to me like yeah. it's so far outside of anything that exists before or after in Peanuts that there has to be some extenuating circumstances around uh, around its creation because it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's several things he does in the, in the first of these strips that he'd never done before. And I think it runs four or five Sundays. It's just, it's not peanuts anymore. And it's, and he, he must've realized that cause he never did anything like this again. So yeah. you're going to have to just wait and see what we're talking about. The continuity, as much as there, there's very, and we could tell you, you know, there's no spoilers at this point and we'll talk about them one by one, but, you know, it's Lucy at a golf tournament. There's adults. Uh, it's drawn very differently. And there, and it turns into a true continuity strip where it's not attempting to make a, a punchline really at the end. It's just getting you to come back to see what happens at the golf tournament the next week. It's a completely different vibe. Um, and he does some other things, you know. Oh, this is the year of Charlotte Braun. And I, I, I do understand and agree with what Harold's saying that, yeah, this is... This is a guy who is is really, really going for it. And, you know, back to one of my few metaphors that I apply to everything. But in baseball, if you want to be a home run hitter, you're also going to strike out a lot. And uh, I think that's a lot what we're seeing here. There's a lot of confidence in this year. Yeah, but strangely enough, I mean, he always moved the strip forward. And it was very important to him to keep to keep it fresh and try new things. It's just this year. I think there's two very obvious flubs and I can't think of any other year where anything like that happens, where it's clearly a serious mistake and he never does it again. Right. Yeah. Although I'm really grateful for those flubs. Oh, you know, it, well, this is, this is interesting because once Fantagraphics reprints the entire thing from beginning to end, the way we interact with peanuts as a work of art changes, right? I mean, yeah. Schultz was drawing these things saying, you know, there one day it'll be in the newspaper and then it'll be gone. And then I can decide what gets remembered, what gets put into a book and gets reprinted and sent around the world in that format. Uh, but because of his achievement, primarily through the strips that we know that have been reprinted 18 million times, it's it's considered this great masterpiece and now we want to see every single thing so now we have every single thing and there was sometimes a reason <laughs> that they were cut yeah so it's mr moonlight yes <laughs> 
Why did they do that? Why? No, that's that's an interesting point, Jim, because not only are we experiencing peanuts in this in this collective form, but so is Schultz. You know, he probably didn't have that experience until the first books came out, which was, you know, what, 52, and he's seeing he's seeing to some extent the comics comic strips being published in in a serial form in comic books as well. So he like us is kind of experimenting in his mind with how people engage with his strip now in a different way, not just on this daily basis, but also he's in, you know, it's something he's experiencing like we are, that you can also read him a whole bunch of things together. And that, that must change the way you, you view what you create. I, I just put out uh, a little book um, of my sweetest beast strips from Instagram and reading them together was, was a, you know, a fairly new thing, just one after another turning the page. And it, it has changed the way I, I consider approaching the strip. Oh, really? That's inter- Well, what, what decisions did it make you make? I think the sense of a repetition and the sense of, you know, something that is only for, for panels, if, if you don't mix up the, um, you don't mix up the, the composition in the panels or you, you keep, keep the same colors, you know, that's okay for four panels, but for 40, like, I could put some pink in there. <laughs> right. Well, actually, you know, now that I think about this, Michael, when you were doing Tangled River, that was being posted one page at a time. And so you were actually able to get reader feedback. I mean, what was that like? I never, the closest, I did Amelia as a comic book, but it's not the same as that kind of instant feedback when you're doing it and people are able to respond a page at a time. What was that like? Uh, I was always a little afraid to get comments because sometimes I think, uh, especially uh, on on the internet, people tend to get snarky because it's funny. Right. And so there'd be a snarky comment, and I'm going like, wait a minute, is he making fun of this, or he's just, it's like a good-natured joke for the other readers. Right. And it tends to be the worst of human nature gets expressed in comments on the internet. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, I was, I was also attra- attracted to a little more continuity. Like, you know, what if I did do something that was five pages? And, you know, again, that's that's something we think we see schultz doing here right yeah for for sure you know he would be getting reader feedback but it would be weeks and weeks later and he doesn't the the big flopperoos <laughs> to quote jules pfeiffer um don't get repeated so i think even without the reader feedback he knew that they were going nowhere because there's not like they were around for six weeks or so and then then disappeared they, they made their little shots and that was it but it's crazy because the rest of the stuff, I, I, we're going to have shows that end up being days long because we aren't, like Michael said, this is not what I would have previously considered the beginning of the peak of Peanuts. And we're at the point where it's just classic after classic. And again, so many great Sundays. Yeah. It seems just like he's really inspired by the by the form of the Sundays. I'm not sure what what drew, maybe that's the part of, of cartooning he was actually originally attracted to the most with things like you know Prince Valiant and those again Crazy Cat stuff like that. And again, you know that if he's experiencing that, hey, look what I can do with uh, you know with ten or twelve panels. You know, maybe that's why we're seeing him think, hey, what could I do with forty eight panels? Right. Yeah, and he's even breaking up the the four panels. He's not going so far as to to change the size of panels but he will subdivide on the daily strip 
the four equal panels into like eight equal panels, which uh, he experiments with a few times with, you know, varied success. But it's interesting. I think that he's trying at least a little bit to break out of the the four panels that he was he was given by the syndicate. Pretty short order, though. He abandons that as well and just just succumbs to it, I think. Okay, so that's where we are in 1954. Why don't we take a break right now, and then when we come back, we will go through our picks for the best, funniest, most interesting, and most historic strips of 1954. So we'll see you after the break. And we're back with Unpacking Peanuts. I'm Jimmy Gownley. Joining me is Michael Cohen and Harold Buckholtz, and we're going to look at 1954 in the world of Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, and Lucy, uh, going strip by strip. And also, I should remind you guys, if, if you're wanting to follow along with us while we do this, you can just go to gocomics.com. They have a strip called Peanuts Begins, and you can read these strips all along with us. January 3rd. Schroeder is sitting at his toy piano. Lucy looks on admiringly from afar. She says, Gee, he's cute, but he doesn't even know I'm alive, and something's got to be done about it. Lucy continues to look on from afar. I'm going to make Schroeder notice me if I have to kill myself trying. She jumps up on top of his piano and starts dancing. Hey, hey, look at me, I'm dancing. Schroeder is appalled. Get off my piano, he yells. He pulls out a rag and starts dusting off the scratches. Good grief, scratches, scuff marks, footprints. Whew, says Lucy, who has been tossed to the ground. Schroeder looks as she walks away and says, I think that poor girl has lost her mind. Lucy says to herself, I'll probably never get married. This is a classic strip. Uh, this isn't the first Lucy uh, in love with, with Schroeder at the piano strip. There's going to be lots of them over the years. This is as, as good as they get, I think. It really sums things up. Yeah, he comes back to the I'll probably never get married a few times. And I, I like the drawing in this. I love her dancing. Look at me, I'm dancing. <laughs> yeah, and this is also... Um one of the earlier successful examples of the non-punchline joke where you could argue that it's not it's not a big laugh it's just it's just kind of closing out what was a really dynamic strip he's he's comfortable with the the final the final statement not being a necessarily a huge punchline i guess the first i'll probably get never never get married you could say using it the first time <laughs> maybe is is a you know he would have considered a, a strong punchline but to me, that was one of the hallmarks of Charles Schultz was the fourth panel isn't necessarily going to be the big the big punchline. In this case, the last panel of a Sunday. But. You know, and you'll see this again and again, and this is, is continuing from 1953, where he is trying, it's almost every panel's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the the top tier, which gets removed, has its own punchline, which is really, I mean, it's not a punchline in the traditional sense, but if you know Lucy, it, it's hilarious. You know, she's funny doing her little dance. His reaction is funny. Her going, fly, it's, it's, the whole thing is just a general nice piece of entertainment, yeah. really beautifully drawn too. So this makes me think he instantly has, has Schroeder up to speed here with his piano and he, he has a relationship with Lucy. And, you know, poor Shermie. This is definitely the beginning of Shermie being ousted from the main cast. And uh, 
I saw something online when I was doing research for this episode that made me, I wanted to bring it up here. Uh, apparently, if you wrote in and requested a book a booklet because you purchased the first Peanuts collection, you would get this little thing in the mail and it was like a, like a mini comic essentially with the Peanuts cast drawn by Charles Schultz, but watercolor washed like in his Saturday Evening Post style. Wow. They look like little New Yorker cartoons. Oh, they're gorgeous. And the, you can see the originals online at um, Heritage Auctions website. Mm -hmm. But he has each of the characters in some sort of pose or setting that indicates their personality. Snoopy has a big smile and he's in front of his, his doghouse with a TV antenna. Charlie Brown is decked out for baseball. Schroeder's at the piano. Lucy's skipping rope. Patty's playing marbles. Violet's selling mud pies. And Shermie is standing there with his hands in his pockets. Oh. <laughs> I would like to propose something called the, the Shermie test of a, of a cartoon. Yes. The Shermie test is if, and that's, you wouldn't do it so much in this one we're talking about now, but if you replace the character in the strip with Shermie, would it still be funny? Would it still be funny? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say, whenever I see Shermie, I do get this warm feeling. I don't know why, but I like Shermie. Harold, all I can say is you would. <laughs> what were you going to say, Michael? <laughs> I have a Shermie button. I, I do too. I do. I like him too. What were you going to say before that, Michael? No, but the fact is, it, the, to, to to pass the Shermie test, if it's because I think these jokes are character specific. Yeah. That now would this, if it was Patty. Who is in love with Schroeder? Would it be as funny? No, it's this is actually really interesting because it's marking the point where Schultz is moving away from just writing gags. Because one of the things that we all remarked upon in those early strips is he is writing jokes and they're just being delivered by these drawings. Yeah, and now, like you say, it's entirely out of the character. Yeah. That's interesting, but we'll have to, we'll see that. Let's see if there's some that are just funny punchliney jokes. We'll apply the Shermie test and see if that works. It's interesting. Uh, unfortunately, I, th I think I have a funny punchliney joke. I I want I do call out, okay. but it has Shermie in it, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, it passes the Shermie test, I guess. January seventh, Patty and Charlie Brown stand outside in the snow. They have just made a snowman. Patty says to Charlie Brown. That snowman is just as much mine as it is yours. She continues, pointing at Charlie Brown and yelling, In fact, Charlie Brown, if you don't look out, I'm just liable to take my half and go home. Charlie Brown answers, Oh, ho, 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 you wouldn't dare. Patty says, Wouldn't I? Charlie Brown confidently says, Uh-uh. The last panel, we see the snowman cut in half, and Charlie Brown looks out at us, chagrined. <laughs> We have to point out that it was it was cut down uh, vertically. Ah, uh, yes, it was cut down <laughs> vertically. Yes. Although I will say she got the carrot. Oh, that's true. So that's a little more than half. You know, we should have pointed this out last year, uh, but we didn't really do any of the snowman strips. But one of the big parts of Calvin and Hobbes is is Calvin's snowman art. And that is a direct lift from 1953, Charlie Brown making making weird snowmen. So. I'm calling you out, Bill Watterson. 
what you gonna want if if you didn't completely <laughs> steal that from Charles Schultz, why don't you come on our podcast and defend yourself? There you go. <laughs> oh, he's doing it. Who can who can uh, let that just lie? He's doing it. <laughs> you know the thing that struck me in this strip, in the third panel, um, we see all four panels. We see, well, first three panels. We see Charlie Brown and Patty, and then we move into what you could say, I guess, is a medium shot of them uh, close up, and the and the word balloons aren't hanging from the top of the strip. They, uh, or at least Charlie Brown's is not, and. That variation was really striking. That I, I just thought it was a really nicely drawn and composed panel. But it made me start to think about Peanuts. That over ninety nine percent of his panels, at this point at least, are always long shots. You see everything of every character. And I just wanted to throw out there: Why do you think Schultz did that? And what do you think the is there an impact uh, for the reader? when you're always seeing them in this kind of tableau, like like in the theater, where you're seeing the full body from a distance versus you know, doing close-up shots of heads and this and that, the way uh, at least some other cartoonists do. Well, in some ways, it sort of helps with reinforce the rhythm of the four panels. You know, it feels like it, that's unchanging and in many instances the camera is also unchanging i think the drawing would draw attention to itself too much as a drawing if there was a lot of radical uh, variations and as a matter of fact we will see that when we come up on the the infamous golf strip thing uh you know and also sometimes just comedy is better in just a wide a wide shot in a, in a cartoon like in the i mean the old say Buster Keaton would probably agree with you on that, Jim, because when he was doing silent comedy, um, he was loath to cut when there was a bit of business being done because, you know, the humor is in seeing what someone is accomplishing in real time in this, this, this piece that there is, there's no, there's no trickery. There's no, there's nothing to distract you. It's the virtuosity of someone able to, make everything happen within the frame. Yeah. Yeah. And it, he is a virtuoso. I mean, he can really compose a panel, but all of these panels are really beautifully drawn. Yeah. January 8th, Lucy is reading a book to herself. The boy is lying on the grass. The grass is green. The boy is looking up at the sky. The sky is blue. She tosses the book over her shoulder and walks away. I can't stand books that have a lot of description. Pretty funny, I would think. <laughs> yeah, it is very funny and very nice lettering. Uh, going for a serif lettering, which you don't see often. Giant serif lettering. Yeah. Again, this is his Dan Clausen influence retroactively coming to the fore here. <laughs> Just in case anyone doesn't know who that reference is, he's a cartoonist from the late 80s. So obviously the influence goes the other way. January 17th. Linus is crawling around on all fours in his living room. He says to himself, Big kids drive me crazy. Well, I'll be, he says, coming into a room filled with toys. I can't believe it. All these toys and nobody around. No big kids to take things away from me just when I'm starting to have fun. Linus smiles and starts playing with the toys. He says, I can't stand big kids. I can't get over it. All these toys and nobody around. Oh, good grief, he says. 
Here they come. He ducks for cover. Big kids. The entire gang runs past. In the last panel, we see Linus sitting alone, all the toys gone. He sighs to himself. This is really great. Yeah, so this is this is a very articulate uh, Linus. I, have we had Art Linus able to articulate kind of his deeper thoughts before? Has it happened before? I can't remember. No, no. And w- one thing I did notice this year is Schultz keeps aging and de-aging Linus. <laughs> yeah, this is a point where it it is word balloons rather than thought balloons, but you can read that as he's alone, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really sophisticated, uh, you know, adult language. And he doesn't do this again anytime this year. Yeah, and you know, you really, at least I really feel for Linus uh in the in this strip. He's this this little kid is, you know, we we've seen him non-verbally being abused and being verbally abused by Lucy um earlier on and and uh we haven't really gotten into his head verbally before. And it, I think it just magnifies the impact of this, this little kid where, because he's a little kid, he's not, he's just constantly thwarted in, uh, in, in having anything happen. He seems to live in this interior world by himself and almost by necessity. We did have that one strip last year that I, I really liked that um, was, was him and Snoopy sitting side by side and, and uh, Linus initiates tickling Snoopy, which Snoopy doesn't like initially, but then Snoopy like, thinks better of it and just tickles him back and they both have this lovely little moment. That's the first and only time I think we have seen up until now where Linus has um, has triumphed in some way where he's, he's connected with someone or he was able to see through something that made himself happy. And so this is kind of an extension of this the little boy being just overlooked, um, abused, mistreated by the other kids. It's a beautifully drawn strip. It it harkens back to the 5 and 10 store where uh, we saw all the little toys that he drew um, in the shelves at the the little Woolworths there. Now they're all back home and have been played with. And I love it when he puts all that that detail in. And of course, the other panel I love is the the next to the last one with um, the whole gang, it's Patty, Violet, Charlie Brown, Shermie, and Lucy running in to get the toys. And uh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, it really is beautifully beautifully done. That looks like it could be almost a Jaime. Oh, the big panel yeah. where they're running? Yeah. It looks like the line looks a little thicker. I wonder oh, that's if he actually blew it up. Oh, then other strips, other Sunday strips? Well, they're just the other panels in, that, in the one where they're all running looks a little you know i think on, in some defined. instances too i'm not sure that they had That's interesting the best sources although that wouldn't explain why one panel is is different maybe he did do something different for that one lots of spotted blacks which definitely kind of gives the feeling that there's a thicker line yeah and those strange uh motion marks up at the top which feel sort of dead weight in some ways honestly this looks like i was going to say earlier a, a jaime hernandez drawing it, i mean i know jaime is is taking from Schultz and, and using it for his own purposes. But this really <laughs> looks like he inked it. Yeah. Well, let's keep an eye on Linus in the next bunch of strips and see if he turns back into a little baby for a while. I think Schultz would ju- just said such a great setup that he might have thought, oh, what the heck? Let's let's give Linus some sophisticated thoughts for once. Yeah, he's still he's still crawling in this one. So so, yeah, it's it's that 
classic Schultz mixing something that is sophisticated with something that is very, very child childlike. January 19th. Snoopy is begging and Charlie Brown holds a bag of candies. He says to Snoopy, You don't expect to get anything when you sit up like that, do you? Get some expression. Sit up straight. That's the way. Snoopy now sits up straighter with a smile on his face. Charlie Brown walks away and tosses the bag over his shoulder. Incidentally, the candy's all gone. We now see Snoopy standing alone, still sitting up on his hind paws, but now looking forlorn. That is such a funny image of him in the last panel. Yeah, which, which by the way, mirrors the first panel. Right? <laughs> well, he's even more, he's yeah. like stunned. Well, first of all, Charlie Brown doesn't do a whole lot of these cruel things. Yeah, I don't think he's doing it on purpose. Is, is Earlier he, I, on, I mean, he did. It looks like he's just focused on teaching Snoopy something, and Snoopy is the one who's assuming that there's candy in his bag. Oh, I think he's being cruel. I yeah, I, yeah, I would definitely disagree on this. Just looking at how he set it up, he's Charlie Brown is just focused on Snoopy's behavior, and he's trying to teach him something. And then he's like, Incident. "No, no," because he's yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's nice that you think the best of Charlie Brown, but no. January twenty fourth, Lucy kicks a box of cookies out of Linus's hands. That's what I think of your box of cookies. She kicks Schroeder's piano, saying, That's what I think of your old piano. She kicks Violet's collection of stamps, saying, That's what I think of your stamp collection. She kicks over Charlie Brown's puzzle, and that's what I think of your old picture puzzle. She destroys and kicks Shermie's marbles, saying, And that's what I think of your stupid old marbles. She does the same to Patty, and that's what I think of your silly old color crayons. In the last panel, we see Lucy being chased by all the other kids, with Lucy saying, I'm frustrated and inhibited, and nobody understands me. <laughs> this, well, this is tied for my pick of the year. This is so such classic Lucy material, and passes the Shermie test, totally. Yeah. This would only work with Lucy. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, the other kids have been mean, but they seem to be only mean to Charlie Brown. Whereas Lucy just feels like she's just pure id. It's not solely directed at Charlie Brown. Yeah. Anger is something in this strip that, I mean, it's, it's very important part of the strip, right? I did a typical Haroldian thing where I went and looked at all of the strips from this year and all the strips from 1953, the previous year. And I just said, how many times, how, how many strips have characters expressing anger? So do you guys have any get? And I will tell you that it was in my count exactly the same number for each year, which I thought was interesting. Anybody oh, wow. want to guess no, what percentage no, or what number of the 365 strips had a character showing anger? The Heroldian Index? 25. I would go with 75. 75. And Jim, you said 25%? Yeah, no, I said 25 strips. 25 strips that <laughs> yeah. characters showed anger. You said 75. It was 135 strips. Holy cow. Characters showing anger. It'd be really interesting to put, put that up against the family circus. <laughs> or, or I guess uh, later Peanuts. Or later Peanuts, yeah, yeah. I read the Comic Journal interview with Schultz yesterday, and he says in, in the 70s, he's decided for the characters to be a lot nicer. He didn't like all the cruel cruelty. He said, I think they're just going to start being nice to each other. 
Well, it's interesting. We'll have to take a look and see what the trajectory is. Yeah, you know, it, that's it's okay. it's such an interesting thing because it's just an inevitable part of just growing and changing and staying with the same work of art for decades. You know, you're you're just going to be a different person at different points in your life. So it's really interesting. And, and he can't tell what is going to make it click or not click, really. And I don't think in his wildest dreams did he think he would have achieved this level of success. I mean, nobody else had ever in this art form. January 31st. We see Snoopy's doghouse with a line of kids outside. Shermie is down on all fours looking in. He's about to crawl inside. Charlie Brown says, What in the world is going on over there? One by one, he sees all the other kids crawl into Snoopy's doghouse. Finally, at the end, he says, Hey, is there room for one more? A voice comes from inside. Sure, come on in. Shredder pokes his head out and says, The house itself isn't so big, but you ought to see the recreation room. I hadn't noticed, uh, another thing he mentioned in the interview was the decision to make the doghouse always in profile. Sort of a two-dimensional object. And seeing it in three dimensions... And it kind of emphasizes the joke in a way, uh, because you really see how small it is. So do you think that works ultimately for it or against it, given that he chose ultimately to just show it from the side so you don't see it at any other angle going forward? I mean, it's a real doghouse here. And so, he, I mean, all the the classic stuff with him sitting there with a the typewriter, none of that could have happened in a three-dimensional doghouse. Right. There's a surreal quality to this that I... I, I like and is unique to Peanuts. Um, he's Charles Schultz is, is remarkably comfortable with adding surreal elements to this otherwise pretty realistic world. Yeah, to me, this is I, I'd prefer it when it just stays on it on the the flat plane because this looks to me like a magic trick. You know, they they crawl into the cabinet and they disappear, and you figure, well, there's a a basement or something like that, which is weird, I know, for a doghouse. But in the more abstract strips, I don't think about the physical aspect of it at all. And I just accept it, that it's, it's sort of imaginary liminal space or something. February 7th. Charlie Brown is sitting on a sled on top of a very small hill, maybe a foot and a half high. Snoopy is looking on. Charlie Brown says to Snoopy, come on, Snoopy, you can sit right behind me. Snoopy climbs aboard the sled. Are you ready? Here we go. Hang on. Down, down, down. Racing like the wind. We made it. Snoopy looks out at us. Very unimpressed by the tiny little path that Sled has made. Charlie Brown turns to Snoopy and says, Shall we try it again right away? Or do you want to wait until you catch your breath? This is what, as comparison to the, the doghouse one, this has to be in profile. Because this isn't really a hill. It's like... Good. It's not even a slope. I don't know what this thing is, but they've gone like two feet on this little slope. But that's a kid thing. You notice how Schultz uh, kind of defies gravity? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Schultz says to define gravity because Charlie Brown is like definitely would not be on top of the slope because Snoopy's got to get on the back. So with Snoopy not being there, it's clear that he would have been actually on the slope going down. It's a really interesting choice on his part to keep everything stylistically and visually the same, even though it physically, by the law of physics, would not work. Yeah, well, there is no gravity on peanuts. 
Right. But like you're saying, it would not work uh, if you vary the angles. And this is a really hard strip to draw because you're drawing this little sled, which is some fine line uh, stuff that's it's a you know, it's it's a minimal device but it's it's a piece of machinery that, that those are just difficult to draw because you have to keep it consistent from panel to panel you can't have the same variation you would with with a character and he, he's showing incremental movement i mean literally charlie brown's sled travels maybe 18 inches on this death defying journey it's it's a really you have to yeah, be rigorous have to, be bold to, draw to break break the rules he, he knows what works in a comic strip uh, i think i've got a strip coming up as well that kind of deals with this strange the rules of comics and what you can get away with in comics when it comes to time and and space and physics. Yeah, it's amazing how much formal stuff he does considering uh, how much just limitations are placed on him that he can't change. It's, re it's really impressive. February 11th, Charlie Brown is sitting outside on his curb. Violet is very happy and says, when I grow up, I want to be a nurse. Charlie Brown looks at her and says, that's fine. She sits down next to Charlie Brown and asks him, What do you want to be when you grow up, Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown says, Perfect. This is yeah, more Charlie Brown trying to be perfect, trying to come across as perfect, but he's, he's a little more melancholy, I think, about it than he has been in the last two years. The confidence seems to kind of be slowly running away from uh, Charlie Brown, and the Charlie Brown that we're used to seeing seems to be emerging here. You know, if you think about this as some sort of Schultz analog, it's a really weird thing because I don't know many people that aspire to be perfect, but maybe it explains his ambitious nature trying to become such a great cartoonist because it's a pretty, pretty odd goal. What do you want to be? Perfect. Well, it, and if, if he really does feel that way, then there, yeah, I mean, no wonder there's anger. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? You know, and I'm thinking again. He's he's uh, he's he's at the the Church of God offices. He's 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 uh, he's a I think he's an elder or at this point he's I think he's teaching um, Sunday school classes, you know. And and I don't know maybe he's reading reading uh, you know the words from the New Testament says you know be be ye perfect, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> that's what <laughs> I want to do. He's taking it very seriously. I don't know, but. Uh, you know, it, it's really fascinating to see see him just yeah he's 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 shooting for perfection in the strip. You kind of get that sense, and he's he's doing a really good job. But it's it's not enough if you want to be perfect. February fifteenth, Charlie Brown and Violet are sitting in class. Charlie Brown says to Violet, "You know what? What?" Charlie Brown says. My grandfather says when he went to school, he used to dunk the girl's pigtails in the inkwell. Violet stands up, turns around, and yells at Charlie Brown, saying, If you try that, I'll knock you clear across the room. Charlie Brown says, That's what happened to my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> now, I picked this one not because of the joke or anything about the joke, because I don't think it's very funny. It's the first time we've seen them in school at the desks. Oh, that's the amazing. profile at the desks, which becomes like that a major setting. Yeah, and it's right in the classic uh, lineup, you know, showing it from the side, two desks in profile. But I have to disagree. I think that's hilarious. I yeah. think that's a really funny I joke. I think it's a funny strip. Michael really does like the jokes that are are coming from character, and this this is uh, if you did the Shermie test. Uh, 
<laughs> yes, it, it, it passed the Shermie test. No, wait, does that mean it passes the Shermie test or no, it fails the Shermie test? I don't know. Yeah, I'm no, if, it, if Shermie can do the joke, that's failing the okay, Shermie yes, test. Yes, that would make right. sense. Yeah, by Michael's rules, it, you can right. get okay. away with that. And the strip would get away with that. Okay, so we're going to say this is important because first school, we think it's a funny joke, but it does fail the Shermie test. So it's not quite up to snuff. No. All right. February 16th. Linus is sitting on the floor reading a book. Lucy is sitting next to him, staring at a clock. From panel one to three, we see the clock incrementally move towards the hour. When it strikes seven o'clock, Lucy turns to Linus and screams, Bedtime! And, and Linus completely flips over, dropping his book in total, total, I don't what do you call that, that, that ex- expression, surprise and, and, and fear and yeah, he's totally shocked and chagrined. I mean, this this pre premeditated. I mean, talk about this is like classic. Schultz is saying this little girl is premeditatedly waiting to torture her her little brother, and that is chilling to me. I mean, <laughs> that that is just a chilling strip. I mean, and and that Schultz is willing to go there and let her let this look this character be so so just innately cruel. Is is is? It, I don't remember seeing stuff like this in other strips. No. February twenty first. Charlie Brown and Lucy are standing outside at night. Lucy is pointing up at the sky and counting, nine hundred and one, nine hundred and two. Charlie Brown says, "Gee, I thought you'd have given up by this time." Lucy says, "No, sir. When I get started on something really worthwhile, I never give up." Charlie Brown says. If you're going to count all these stars, I think I'd better help you. Lucy says, well, I appreciate this, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown says, have you counted that little one up there? Lucy says, which little one? That one? Charlie Brown says, no, that little one over there. Over there? No, there. You mean that little one next to that chartreuse one? No, that little one right there. You mean right there? No, right there, right up there. There, up there? No, no, there. There, there? No, there. There? Yes, there. Lucy says, what about it? <laughs> so funny. This is great. It's a great gag. Does it pass the Shermie test? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the gag is not a typical Lucy gag, but it's a typical, well, maybe it doesn't. I mean, it's a kid thing with pointing out stars. First of all, it's impossible to do. Well, Lucy does have this thing, though, where she's trying to count various things. She's trying to make scientific yeah, I was... advancements. Uh, she's doing her own little experiments. So it does sort of make sense for Lucy. And also she's, she is slightly younger than Charlie Brown. So she might be still able to think that she could do this. That's one thing she, uh, Lucy does a lot this year and in the, in the, the upcoming years, she's like a little scientist, except she has no clue Yeah, and comes up with these crazy explanations for things. Uh, and if somebody comes up with the real explanation, she thinks they're crazy. <laughs> so she's actually the first QAnon adherent, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, it is really funny because she is so confident in her ignorance. She will just make up a fiction and go with it. <laughs> yeah, and is there a character like that that predates Lucy? Is he following anything or is this he kind of creating this? something that hasn't been seen in comic strips before i mean i couldn't because i know like in general early strips were often very urban people were all over each other in a city you know there's just 
someone's always hanging out of a window next to somebody else, it's crowded, or, or rural strips where they're using their wits to survive, those kind of strips. And then here we're in this world where people come together, but they're still somehow isolated from each other. It's this, this existential strip like we haven't seen before, except maybe in Crazy Cat in one form or another. Yeah. And there's this real sadness in being unable to connect to others despite this great effort, you know, in a world that's so much bigger than they can comprehend. It's, you know, without putting too much of a philosophical spin on this, I really do feel like he's doing something that has not been seen before. He really loved flat color for the later Sunday strips, but I don't know what the early ones looked like. They're flat color too. I mean, they, it's not until the, you know, Photoshop comes in in the 90s when you start seeing gradients and stuff in, in peanuts and it looks really jarring. They, they color it on peanuts begins even the dailies. Yeah, and those are colors that were done after Schultz passed away for the dailies, um, just done by done by really talented artists after the fact. The Sundays, I'm assuming, represent what? Well, maybe not. Maybe they weren't able to to salvage the the color as Schultz marked it out. Because the way it used to work for Sundays is you would mark up the colors and tell through a series of codes the uh, engravers and the people working in the offices of of the these. Um, separation companies that would make the different colors. Schultz couldn't actually do that himself. That was one piece that he had to rely on others to do through a, a series of kind of mechanical codes. And I think yeah. because of that, he's not particularly interested in it, at least in the later strips that I see. He'll just say, okay, you know, 100% cyan is a back as a background color, then it's 50% yellow. And he would always change the background colors. It was a little jarring uh, as an adult to go back and look at that. But as a kid, I just took it for granted that, you know, the the background is so abstract to Schultz that he doesn't care if there's a, a, a red sky followed by a yellow sky followed by a blue sky followed by a green sky. He's just mixing up, you know, adding adding some variation on the page. Yeah, it just makes a really attractive Sunday page. I've uh, become really influenced by the mid-century coloring recently. And I, in my... Later work, this uh, which uh, mostly stuff people haven't seen yet. Uh, the coloring is is gone more towards that style. What people don't realize, there were only sixty four colors that they could even choose from. I mean, at some point it went to like a hundred and twenty eight, and guys like Will Eisner, I think, only had thirty two. It's and it's just mixing cyan, magenta, yellow, and then there's a black plate that hold, with the lines over top of it. It's limiting, but like limitations often are, it can be a source of creativity. And if you, if you get good at it, people who are really good at coloring with those 64 colors, it, it, it just looks really sharp. And, and it never dates because you're not going to see, oh, that's obviously a 1990s Photoshop gradient. Oh, that's obviously a lens flare from you know, <laughs> your Photoshop effects palette or something like that. February 28th. Lucy is in her pajamas. She's walking along in her house, pulling a teddy bear in a wagon. She's playing with her blocks and singing to herself. From off panel, an adult says, Lucy, it's time to go to bed. Lucy freaks out. No, I don't want to go to bed. I won't. I won't. You can't make me. You can't. You can't. I won't go to bed. I won't. I won't. During all of this, she is just throwing herself all across the living room in ever more ridiculous positions of protestation. She says, come to think of it, I am kind of tired. He does this, takes uh, other takes on this gag. There's one later in the year, and that when we come to it, that's uh, September 5th. Basically, where Lucy flies into a tantrum. I mean, just an insane tantrum. 
and then goes along with it in the end, saying, eh, okay. Yeah, it seems like there's a little bit of, of Lucy that just feels she has to do the performance because that's who she is. She's the fuss budget. If she just went to bed, mm-hmm. who is she? Yeah, these work so well. It's almost like you could make a bedspread out of this strip, right. you know? <laughs> it just is beautifully designed. Oh, really good. So much fun. Oh, and did you notice that there is one stylistic choice that Schultz does that kind of is a is <laughs> different than virtually every other strip he ever did? This is a unique strip, as far as I know. The pan. Whoa. The panel is border. Is it have to do with lettering? No. Well, in a way, it does. Oh, I said. Did you hear what I said? That the panel is. Yeah, he has. It does have a panel is border. I think works works really really well. But that wasn't what I was thinking of. Two. Two of them. Yeah. Oh, uh, you got me. No, I don't know. Take a look at his signature. Oh no, that's not a stylistic choice. That's different. I knew that. <laughs> I was going to point. Oh, out I'm anything. sorry. Okay. Right. <laughs> he, he, he signs. He signs his complete name. Did he do that any other strip? Yeah, he does it a couple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. I'm year. looking at the next word. Yeah. It's coming up on uh, 321. Yep. March 21st. Do you think there's any particular reason why a certain strip gets the full name or not? Or he's just, he just forgot. (laughs) I have no idea. I I briefly had a conspiracy theory for this, but it was disproved later while I was doing my rereading. So I'm going to keep that to to myself. I don't know why. I really like the drawing in this strip. I love where Lucy lands on uh, her head. I love the panel after that where she's kicking her feet and it's just these abstractions uh it's like futurist oh, art yeah and the i won't i oh, won't two different directions really two different directions and two panels yeah. away from each other and they're like mirror in reverse mirror well yeah it's a mirror image it's great strip i just think it's great march 21st charlie brown is outside playing in a sandbox patty comes over kicks the sand castle he was making down stomps all over it charlie brown looks forlorn then looks out at the audience, just a look of disbelief on his face. Then he gets angry. Then he goes home. He takes off his shirt. He takes off his shoes. He gets into bed, looking utterly defeated and depressed, and sighs to himself. Siga. Good old Charlie wow. Brown. This is probably the most depressing. Wow, this this one really hit This me. is the most depressing peanut strip. It's like this is his life right it here. Is- it's so gutting just to see, you know, he's a little happy kid making his sandcastle and then the, the joy with which Patty is destroying his, his, uh, his work. And, uh, you know, that he, he goes from sadness to disbelief or can you believe this to the audience? Then just taking in what he's seeing. It's like, it's like the stages of grief or something. Then there's anger and then he, he just walks home with no expression and, and then you know, gets into bed with the little orphan Annie circle eyes, which Schultz was still using occasionally, that is very <laughs> haunting. And he's just kind of, yeah, he's just sighing to himself. With his, with, and you can see his, his shoes and his socks still just strewn on the floor where he's left them. It's, yeah, it, it's, this is, again, just pure Schultz. There's, there's nobody, nobody who could do what he does here at the time he's doing it the way he does. I mean, certainly a lot of people I think have been inspired to go to places like this in, in more recent years, but I don't think anybody had ever seen anything like this where he's asking you to see this little character who's got a C for a mouth and two dots for eyes and a, you know, a round head <laughs> that we put all of our emotional 
you know, feeling into this little character. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. This is uh, the origin story of Charlie Brown, right? Because this is the time where he breaks. Uh, and we talked about this last episode that sometimes depression manifests as anger, but Charlie Brown by nature doesn't want to be an angry person. And so here we see it, you know, he, he, he has the opportunity. This little girl comes in gleefully, meanly ruins his day. He gets furious, but then rather than actually express that, he just goes home and goes to bed and going home and going to bed. Like it is the truest depiction of depression. I, I, I it's, it's really shocking to me that this was in a comic strip in 1954. And I think it obviously meant something to Schultz. And the reason I think that is because he was featured in Illustrator magazine, I believe it was called. It was the magazine that was published by um, the Art Instruction School where he was teaching at. And they have a whole uh, little interview with him right at this time, during which they call him Charlie. But the strip that they choose to reprint and they reprint it in a six by nine format, like a traditional comic book size format is this one. And in full color as a full page comic book page, it's glorious. It just looks so good. And I, I mean, I think as an example of what a comic strip is capable of even now, but especially at that time, this is light years beyond anything else. Yeah. You know, and, and again, going back to that, he wants to be perfect. And it's like, well, what, how, how do you, how do you deal with imperfect people if you're trying to be perfect? You know, are you not, you're not allowed to be angry. Right. Charles Schultz won't let Charlie Brown ultimately that being his primary expression. Yeah. It's, it's, it's complex. Yeah. And it's this feeling of there's no way out. Uh, my only options are to be angry, which I don't want to be, or to be depressed, which I don't want to be, but I'll choose depressed because that only affects me seemingly. Yeah. Again, going back to the, you know, the biblical admonition in your anger, don't sin, you know, it's like, oh, so what do I have left? <laughs> so what do I have left is just to sit here and be depressed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a glorious, glorious trip. And you know, on a little a note, really fun lettering. And you get to see that in the next to next to last panel, uh, Charlie Brown really could not put on or take off a shirt or do much of anything with those little arms. <laughs> so he has to fudge it a little bit to get that over Charlie Brown's head. And if you just l isolate that one panel, yeah, it's, it's kind of levitating off. It of almost him. looks like a South Park. <laughs> like if you zoom in close, it's it's to the point of abstraction. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, look look at how long those little arms are right. and the elbow is. It's it's an odd. But yeah, you, you you buy it when you're reading it. That this little body could take a shirt off. Sure, absolutely, and it's it's you know it's, it's expressionistic. March twenty third, Violet is sitting at her mud pie stand. Charlie Brown says to her, "Something new, you say?" Violet says, "Uh huh, sanitary mud pies." Charlie Brown says, "I don't get it." Violet says, "Untouched by human hands." The reason I picked this is because Violet would have crushed it during the pandemic. <laughs> she is visited. She is inventing no contact delivery. She's an innovator. Decades before anyone thought of it. So I think that is, she is absolutely an innovator. The other thing I wanted to point out just uh, briefly is if we go to April 6th, it's Charlie Brown listening to the radio and we, it's revealed that uh, he's just listening to static. But the way he draws static, I just thought was really great. He did a visual representation of static um, rather than doing like hiss through lettering or something like that. 
but it makes a really sharp looking strip. It's something he did here. It does make appearances now and again as kind of an expressionistic device, sometimes representing frustration over a character's head. But I just thought that was a nice little modernist touch. It looks like an art, art instruction school uh, assignment. <laughs> In what way? Well, the, the, the try to put the lines together in designs as close to each other without touching the other line, draw multiples of this this particular thing uh, in, in different shapes. Yeah. And yeah, it just made me think of it. This was an exercise he might have had on paper. And he's like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, it's a really... He's up in the penthouse at this point in the art instruction school's uh, building, which is pretty cool. Yeah, nice work if he can get it. <laughs> April 11th. Snoopy, Lucy, and Schroeder are all standing in the rain. Lucy and Schroeder have baseball equipment. Lucy says, I think we'd better quit. Schroeder says, I do too. Charlie Brown looks up at the pouring rain and says, it's going to clear up. Charlie Brown continues, I think it's going to clear up. Violet says, you're out of your mind, Charlie Brown. It's continuing to rain as the kids run home. Violet yells, we're going home. Charlie Brown says, but it's going to clear up. He continues chasing the kids as they run away. Patty and Snoopy run. It's going to clear up. It's going to clear up. It's going to clear up. Finally, Charlie Brown is left alone in a downpour. The baseball field completely washed away. And he still says, it's going to clear up. This is really gorgeous. I mean, the way he's he's leaving like uh, little white streaks in everybody's black hair. Just representing them get it getting wet in the rain, and uh, says something about Charlie Brown. Even though he he went home and crawled into bed previously, he's he's standing up for his 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 belief here, his optimistic belief. And ultimately, he will be proven right. <laughs> yeah, in the fullness of time, it will come yeah, come it, to pass. It, it will. <laughs> it will. <laughs> second and third to last panels have yeah like michael saying he's he's experimenting with with how to represent the rain and uh Shermie and and uh, schroeder are are running off and you have these kind of these i don't know the, the uneven ground of the mud and what they're running over he uses darker lines to kind of represent if not a shadow it just kind of feels like they are they are in the mud they are they were running through it, and then the that second to last panel, there's a splash uh, from um, from Shermy that is just beautifully done. I mean, there are a lot of creative things Schultz I, you really don't see again in the other strips, but just for this strip, he 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 innovated a lot of things with with line line work, which is beautiful. I love all the baseball strips because it, it really evokes my childhood. We played so much pickup baseball. Uh, oh, you did. I love it. Oh yeah, every so so this was like so nobody is nobody's making this happen. You're you're figuring out ways to get a team together to go against another team and yeah. just the kids. Well, we had we had little league too. I played little league, teener league, and and then into high school. I quit uh, sophomore year when I realized I was terrible at baseball. Um, but yeah, we would once like the baseball season would be over in June. Yeah, you know, the little league season, and then we just play ourselves, or we we would it would be a bicycle, and through the handlebars you'd have your bat. And on your bat would be hanging your mitt. And then you would jam a basketball up the bicycle frame between your legs. So you could, in case you needed to play basketball. And then if you had to, you could hold a football under your arm because you never knew what you needed to do. <laughs> and that would be it from nine. In, well, no, from, from 11 in the morning when there was free lunch <laughs> till 
it got dark every every day. Wow. My experience was I realized I was terrible at baseball at the wiffle ball stage. So I just have to kind of watch these strips as an outsider. <laughs> wiffle ball is whole, a whole own art form. We were also heavily into wiffle ball. Okay, yeah. Okay, I remember playing catch with my dad once. Uh, <laughs> we had, uh, we would do kick, I think kick, kickball was a thing on our, on our yeah. street. And Foursquare was the thing that was popular on the playground for a number of years. But yeah, baseball was not part of my life. So I, I just kind of. Yeah, I just have to watch the strips and learn. Now, you, you liked baseball, though, Michael. You played, right? Yeah, I was good field, no hit. That's me. Yeah, I was terrified also because everyone's watching you. I, I played one game, and I, I got like a little dribbly single because I was like super fast. So I was on first base, and I thought, wow, because my dad was actually, I think it was an adult, like a father-son game or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I thought like, wow, I like I'm on first. Like that's like the coolest thing in the world. People are watching. My dad comes up. And my dad was like Superman. He just like knocked it like to the moon, basically. And I went like, oh, shut down again. Oh, but you know, it's cool that your dad did it. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, my dad was a great baseball player too. I was always grateful that he never uh, held it against me. <laughs> April 18th, Charlie Brown is pitching a ball to Patty. He says to her, all you have to do is keep your eye on the ball. He looks at us and says, girls are a nuisance sometimes, but it's always a good idea to humor them. Charlie Brown tosses an underhand lob to Patty who rears back to hit it. Charlie Brown says, okay, try and hit it. Pow, Patty does, knocking Charlie Brown backwards. Then as she runs to first, she tosses her bat away, hitting Charlie Brown in the back of the head. Then as she scores for her home run, her inside the park home run, I assume, she jumps on Charlie Brown's stomach. A home run. Oof. Charlie Brown is sitting dazed on the ground. Patty says, well, do you think I'm good enough to play on your team, Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown says, you'll never play on my team. Patty says, but why not? Charlie Brown answers, because I'm giving up the game. And he crawls away. He really knows baseball. I mean, those poses are just so classic. Well, that is, I'm really glad. I'm really glad you say that. He does. That picture of Patty batting, right? The two of them. Yeah, where she lifts her leg. Yes. Yes, she is stepping into the pitch. And the panel that follows, I think, is the first time we've ever seen Charlie Brown having a a ball being hit right through him, and he's upside down when you see a big pow. Um, I think that's the first time Schultz ever discovered that design look for, for you know, having a ball hit past you or through you. Is, has it happened before? I don't think it has. I, I No, I don't think so. And as it goes on, it gets even more um, humiliating for Charlie Brown because it, it gets to the point that all his clothes, except for his little black shorts, are also stripped from him when he gets a line drive <laughs> knocked past him. I used to always yeah, just future think... Strips, yeah. Gosh, it's the most in the worst indignity that could befall a human. Be stripped of your clothing by somebody's line drive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Michael says, you know, you're when you're pitching or batting in baseball, all attention is on you. And it, it's almost like a dream, right? Like you show up at school or work and you have no clothes on. That's where Charlie Brown ends up as a pitcher. <laughs> April 23rd. Schroeder is behind the plate. Shermie's up at bat. Schroeder says, throw him the old beanbag, Charlie Brown. 
Come on, boy, throw him the good old beanbag. Shermie says, just in case you don't know it, the word is beanball. Oh? Panel 4, we see Shermie was wrong. Charlie Brown does, in fact, throw a beanbag to Schroeder. Do people even know what a beanbag is anymore? Yeah, it's, people it's... play that, not that game Cornhole that, that, that has beanbags. Cornhole, yeah. It's a, it's a thing over in the States now. I don't know how it became a thing, but it is a thing. They have can't championships on ESPN7. It's pretty cool. I'm so glad I don't have cable anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I nominated this strip for just something to bring up. I don't know why, but I absolutely love this strip. It's funny. It, it, I don't think it passes the Shermie test, uh, but uh, I just, this to me is is Charles Schultz's sense of humor that he has dating back to the Saturday evening post and with little folks and all of that. And I, I just, it's just beautifully drawn and, and, and surprising and funny. I was just going to say very rare strip without any of the big four in it. That's true. That's true. Thinking Charlie, Charlie Brown, Lucy, Linus or Snoopy. Now very I wonder rare. why they gave it to Shermie. It, it also implies that Shermie's not on Charlie Brown's team. Charlie Brown's pitching. Well, there are no teams. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I look at. No, Sherman's on retainer. You, you, get, you gotta get some value out of this character. He was he was traded. Look, here's the really weird thing, and maybe this tells you something about Sherman. A bean ball is when the pitcher intentionally throws a ball at the batter's head. Shermie is not upset that apparently Schroeder is calling for an illegal and possibly fatal pitch. What he's upset about is that he got the terminology wrong. No, no, no. It's not a bean bag. And he just gets right back in there, no helmet. Well, it's not finally we're we're learning a little bit about Shermie's personality. These these little little hints, you have to just scrape them away from the few appearances in the strip. Yeah, but a Charlie Brown bean ball is, is not going to hurt. Yeah, it would somehow end up being a home run anyway. Yeah, yeah, and this—I think this is a strike and not a yeah, and not a ball, from what I can tell. All right, so he didn't make... comes comes up to cross the plate pretty. well. We would have to do that occasionally, and not not play with bean balls. But when we were playing wiffle ball, we used to play in the schoolyard, and that there was a we would end up putting the balls on the roof. <laughs> by accident you know you hit a foul ball or go up on the roof and we'd run out of wiffle right, balls yeah, so yeah. then you're playing like with tennis balls that are going 500 feet <laughs> it's just absurd well, wait so if you could get these onto the roof does that mean you did the classic kid thing where you could actually hit a window oh we broke many windows <laughs> oh my gosh oh oh i please harold oh my gosh yep um i absolutely remember uh breaking a window uh, both at my friend Mark's house. And it, so the rule is, and then run? Oh, absolutely. No, it was, no, we were too goody-goody oh, for that we because too. we were all going to Catholic school, oh. so we'd go to hell. So we had it. I was evil. I, I tore down the street. <laughs> did you? <laughs> it caught, it, well, it the problem was. It caught up with me later. Oh, did it? Well, for me, I couldn't. I mean, it was right across the street from my house, like right across the street. So. I would I would have gotten it was your house yeah basically yeah (laughs) like oh well oh man so these have you have visceral reactions to these these to these baseball strips oh the uh coming up when Charlie Brown is like oh if only I grip my teeth this is you know much later in this strip I'm gonna get a home run I mean I would think things like that because I think I mentioned and I once struck out 28 times in a row and I'm a I was a decent athlete I was a I was an all-star basketball player but who's counting but 
I am to this day. And I still think someone will call me up and I'll have to like bat against somebody that'll have have a curveball and my humiliation you will. Have those dreams. It totally, yes, absolutely. April 28th. Charlie Brown presents a comic strip that he's drawn to Schroeder. He says, how would you like to read my new human interest comic strip? Schroeder's looking at it and Charlie Brown narrates over his shoulder. There's this little kid and his grandma see. They're just about to starve to death when she comes up with a baked bean hot dish. The little kid wonders where the beans came from. Then he notices something. His bean bag is missing. Schroeder looks nonplussed. Charlie Brown walks away saying, humans that aren't interested in human interest comic strips aren't human. <laughs> so this, in the annals of, of Peanuts bean bag strips, I think these are two of the finest. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the great bean bag motif. But this strip is, yeah, you got bean bags in it. You, you've got, we actually see a little, little visual representation of what Charlie Brown drew on his strip, which is kind of fun too. It's like his little shorthand, far away four panel strip, just like peanuts that he's drawn. It looks like it's, it's been folded. Um, he probably sent it to the syndicate and folded it. I don't know how that works, but in any case, <laughs> the real reason I, I, brought this strip up is Charles Schultz is thinking about human interest strips. We know he loved Little Orphan Annie and he loved uh, strips that had long continuities like Thimble Theater and Popeye and you know he was he, he admired the adventure strips I think just as much as the humor strips and you know you work ahead probably two to four weeks and typically on your Sundays versus your dailies. So here he's doing a strip on the 28th of April and we're, what we're going to see in about, what, about 11 days uh, coming out in the Sunday strip is a human interest comic strip that Schultz is trying to do. So he's thinking about it here. We're seeing him play with it as a joke on a daily. And then you get to see Charles Schultz's attempt at a human interest comic strip uh, in just a few days on the Sunday page. Interesting. You know, I, I'm surprised that he has been sticking with this Charlie Brown as a cartoonist thing for so long. I mean, none of these strips uh, were ever reprinted that to my knowledge or, or very few of them. I never saw any of them until these later day reprints. I, it just, it's such a weird thing. You know, I cannot imagine Charlie Brown as a cartoonist. It just doesn't strike me as being true to the character. Uh, I, I, I kind of, well, I guess I can see that. But again, looking at Schultz, now that Schultz is, is back in Minneapolis and he is at the art instruction schools drawing this every day and he's surrounded by artists, I could totally see why he would be like trying to throw in a gag that his buddies would like. Oh yeah, I can see that for sure. May 1st, Lucy and Charlie Brown are talking to each other outside, each hold a pile of comic books. Lucy says, how about trading a few comic books, Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown answers, I've only got three. Mangle Comics, Disease Comics, and Gory Comics. Lucy says, that's fine. Here, take three of mine. Charlie Brown looks at them. The Little Bunnies, Billy Bluebird, the Funny Foxes. He runs after Lucy. Hey! So this is a sequel to our comic book strip from last year. Yeah, well, Schultz says he was, he was buying comic books in those days. He really liked comic books. And this strip kind of reflects the two genres that were most popular this was early 50s superheroes were gone and it was down to those horror comics 
and the the funny animal comics those kind of ruled ruled the day yeah i i, I love this strip i'm glad you nominated it. i held myself back on it just because it was, i felt it was kind of personal because i i tend to draw the little bunnies billy bluebird and the funny foxes i mean that's <laughs> you check out my sweetest beast comic on instagram it's very it's called sweetest beast it's about a little lion and little lamb getting along with each other so i i totally I totally uh, feel like this is a, a strip for me. I do want to point out another thing, which is is fascinating. This is 1954. This is when comics are under the greatest scrutiny they have ever been in 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 American culture. Because this is the um, and I don't know how he did this, but um, so this is May 1st. He works probably about four weeks or so in a, a ahead, but he probably knew these trials were coming or was he was thinking about it. The trials about these gory, mangled, diseasy comics that were out that were like horror hearings, we and, should say that and very violent, right? Comics, I mean, they were comics, yeah, yeah. yes, it was the Senate, Senate hearings, and there were and that were known as the Kafaver hearings. You could check it on out on Google, but they started on April 22nd, 1954. So they were in progress when this strip ran, even though he did it in advance, which I think is hilarious and amazing that he he is being as topical he's ever as he's ever been, whether he meant to or not, with this strip. Yeah, and the you know the other important thing that we need to say here is that Charlie Brown did not trade his copy of Throttle <laughs> that he so diligently went for last year. He's like, hey, that that one stays at home. My trade in comics are mangled, disease, and gory. <laughs> But throttle, that, that's the only thing that gets me through a funk. I think that's a wise choice on his behalf. Yeah. Now, Schultz did say that he hated superhero comics. So I think probably not long after this uh, period, I would imagine that's when, when Schultz's interest in comic books ends. Yeah. Did, did we ever see, he never, he never depict, he never did depict a superhero comic on those, when he'd make those racks of comics, it would always be something. Yeah, no, never. And of all the things that Snoopy imagines himself being, he never imagines himself being a superhero. Yeah, that's true. Which is, you know, throughout all of the things like, I mean, he was working during the Batman craze of the 60s and the Batman craze of the 80s when the Superman movie came out. And he's making references all during this stuff. I mean, he references like the Bo Derek movie 10 and Bob Dylan's 30th oh birthday. So he's not above, you know, talking about things that are, are current in the zeitgeist, but superheroes never just don't register for him. I've heard wow, him so you talk about like Robert Crumb more than I've heard him talk about Jack Kirby. So like in 19,000 strips or whatever, you you can't think of a single superhero reference. That'll be interesting to keep tracking to see if anything ever sneaks in. The only thing, maybe in the really late years, maybe Rerun might read a superhero comic. But even then, he wants to be an, <laughs> Rerun wants to be an underground cartoonist. Yeah. So I don't know. But yeah, Charlie Brown, it is confirmed he is a hardcore horror comics fan, which is pretty funny. Yeah, and he also he does use the the word C O M I X comics on the covers of these nineteen fifties thing, which turned out to be a popular spelling for underground comics. So I wonder if anybody had that in the back of their head after reading Schultz having some subliminal thing that you you got to spell it with an X. Yeah, maybe. We'll have more with Jimmy, Michael, and Harold in Unpacking Peanuts nineteen fifty four part two, including the infamous golf tournament wait seven days from now because you're going to get more of this this exciting episode unpacking peanuts is copyright jimmy gownley michael cohen and harold buckholtz produced by liz sumner music by michael cohen additional voiceover by aziza shakrala clark 
For more from the show, follow Unpack Peanuts on Instagram and Twitter. For more about Jimmy, Michael, and Harold, visit unpackingpeanuts.com. Have a wonderful day, and thanks for listening. You blockhead!